Hi, I'm Trevor Elio. And I'm Julie Stern. And this is Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts to uncover the concepts and patterns that help us organize our world. From farming to fashion, we can understand any field through acquiring, organizing, and transferring conceptual relationships. We hope this podcast will inspire teachers and students to design creative solutions to complex problems and accelerate innovation in today's schools. If you're interested in our work, you can find out more at edtosavetheworld.com. Our guest this week is Angela Stockman, author of Hacking the Writing Workshop, Make Writing, and the upcoming Creating Inclusive Writing Environments in the K-12 Classroom. If you can't tell by our titles, Angela's passion is writing, mostly. At the heart of Angela's work with writing is a deep commitment to broaden the ways students are able to make meaning, leveraging a wider variety of tools than just the written word. The education system's relationship and centering of print is one with a surprising history that's had some pretty serious consequences. Ones that Angela is trying to rectify with her make writing approach. Almost 100% of the time, the writers that I served, who I defined as gifted writers, when they come into their adult life and their professional experiences, they're coming back to me and saying that they're either not satisfied with the work that they're doing inside of that field, there are humongous injustices occurring, and they don't feel like they can pivot out of it. They don't have the wings to leave that situation. Almost all of the time, there is something um, surrounding their inability to multimodally compose that's holding them back. So they want to be able to get published, and they can't get their stuff published. And in terms of the quality of the written word, it's beautiful, but they don't know how to blog. They're not establishing a digital footprint. Um, they're not necessarily creating a network or a community online. They're not sure how to use graphic design tools, even like the free ones that are available. So they're not able to influence the world in the way that they need to in order to get their stuff published. Over the course of today's episode, we'll be exploring how make writing and multimodal composition are approaches to writing that promote equity, voice, and metaphorical thinking. Angela's ability to distill and synthesize research and turn it into classroom practice is second to none. And her knowledge and passion are evident throughout our dialogue. We hope you enjoy. Our guest this week is writer, facilitator, and instructional designer, Angela Stockman. Welcome, Angela. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. We are super excited to have you. So uh, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, the topic that we're going to be exploring today and some of the concepts that you feel like are most important? Yeah, I'm really passionate about inviting kids to make writing. A more formal explanation of that would be multimodal composition, which is um, the more serious frame that people tend to use. Uh, I call it making writing when I'm working with kids. But anyway, I think some of the concepts that live inside of that that would be worth exploring um, are equity, voice, and metaphorical thinking. Love that. Can you unpack before we jump into those concepts for someone who maybe has never heard of multimodal composition or make writing, they can infer, but can you tell us a little bit more about in layman's terms, like what does that mean? Sure. It means that even though um, dominant culture, especially in America, privileges alphabetic text or print or what we often call the written word, even though that is the dominant form of expression, particularly in our schools, what we know is that there are many ways for us to tell stories and make arguments 
um, to share our opinions, um, to be able to, to teach people about things other than using the written word. For instance, um, we might rely on images or visuals. We might also um, rely on the way that things sound, which is oral, A-U-R-A-L, um, expression. We might focus on the way we lay things out in space, on a page or on a website. Um, I, when I'm being kind of old school about it, I think of yearbook layout, the pages in a yearbook and that spatial design. Um, something that I'm really passionate about and very intrigued by is haptics. Um, haptics have to do with the way that things feel and designing for the sense of touch. So one of the examples I used online yesterday was um, Queen's song, We Will Rock You. And when you think about that song and the bass, you can tell that that wasn't just meant to be heard. It was meant for the audience to feel that vibration and that reverberation. Haptics are hugely important, um, especially for people who have issues with sight because the way that things feel, it helps them make sense of the world and it helps people communicate their messages. So there are haptic stories that people are playing with in the virtual reality world. Those are the, you know, there are all of these different ways to express ourselves other than print. And writing is really multimodal and it incorporates multiple modalities. And one of the things that concerns me is if we don't teach students to write this way, it's going to make them less powerful once they enter the world of work and the real world because most industries are demanding multimodal expression and the most influential people inside of every field are able to communicate that way. For instance, you're doing a podcast, right? Right, now. right. <laughs> Writing a blog post where you yeah. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like design. I imagine that you, a lot of what you're describing sounds like what's very trendy right now, which is design, design thinking yes. um, about about how to sort of visually represent words. Um, that's really cool. I use We Will Rock You in my trainings to illustrate. Oh, how great. <laughs> to, to illustrate rhythm. I, I use that scene, um, which is so great from the movie, Bohemian yeah. Rhapsody, where, where, where it supposedly came about of like making the audience participate. Uh, I just think I love that notion. Um, I use it both for rhythm and I also use it when I'm talking about Jenny Donahue's work on collective efficacy and I'm talking about shared goals yes. um, and goal-directed behavior because they had a goal of right. audience participation and that was and the that result, which is the this, movie is just so incredibly powerful oh, for, so for writers. And, mm. and that's like, you know, when I, I turned to my daughter who I was sitting with when I was watching that and I was saying that was intentionally designed to reverberate with the audience and get them to participate back. And those are moves that great writers make. And you can even tell, like, oftentimes when we talk about haptics, it seems so far removed from the world of writing. But in that scene of that movie, you can totally see how they came at that from a writer's mind and they were thinking about audience and what to communicate and how to hear back from them. Um, mm. And it's just a really beautiful example. And what all of these sort of uh, metaphors and analogies kind of point to is this idea of being able to transfer the skills that you are acquiring uh, when you are in a composition class. And, you know, yeah. the five paragraph essay does not transfer. The modes that we use to compose, if you're thinking about the corporate world, are, are so multimodal. Um, I mean, my, my wife right now is going through courses to get certified on the software called Tableau. And it takes all of these numbers and it turns them into images that are more accessible to, you know, their clients so they can have a better understanding 
right? And you can comprehend them. Multimodality influences comprehension. Mm -hmm. And the more I'm going through right now, um, um, course design, quality matters is um, the rubrics that we use for online course design. And one of the big conversations inside of my work through that training is the importance of multimodality when you're trying to communicate mm -hmm. concepts um, and, and coach skills in an online medium because otherwise it's too flat and it doesn't stick. And um, also as readers and consumers of information, when we are able to grasp things through different modalities, the likelihood that we're gonna understand them is that much higher. So it's important to write that way. Mm. Um, I, I'm wondering, so, so it's the word equity um, is very interesting as a choice because previously literacy, the ability to read and write, um, which we're trying to, we're working hard as a team to blow up the word literacy to mean much more than the ability to read and write. But that, that in, the, in the, certainly in, in the 19th century, um, 1800s, that was what it was. Um, it was a, an access to power. And so it just sounds like what you're saying right now is almost, the equity is almost feeling like twofold. Would you say that's true? In that Equity means stop privileging print and in order to have access to successful jobs, et cetera, you're going to need to have multimodal literacy. Yeah. I, it, when it's been very humbling for me um, in my own research and work to begin to study and better understand the evolution of print inside of our culture. Um, and particularly the alphabet and the use of, of the written word. And so it's really interesting that you bring power into that conversation. And it is true. Um, we want to empower the learners that we serve and the writers that we serve with the ability to, to produce the written word. But when we think about why that became so privileged inside of K-12 schools to begin with, it can be very interesting to study our racial history and our socio-political history in the United States um, because power had something to do with why it, it became privileged inside of our schools to begin with. And what we know is that um, human beings that are descended from more oral cultures, they're oftentimes incredibly gifted with modalities in addition to or other than um, alphabetic text and we privileged pretty much what individualistic culture um, thrives inside and of we um, privileged and we and we withheld uh, it was illegal to teach slaves how to read in the yeah. south um, it was it was illegal and so yeah the the notion that we knew it was powerful and not we I wasn't alive but uh, you know the hum human race um, we also wouldn't give access to certain peoples because we knew it was powerful. And there are a lot of unintended consequences to decisions that we're still making today in terms of policy and curriculum design and program design that are still um, neglecting that reality. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that teachers like me in particular, who white women who, you know, um, I certainly wasn't raised with economic privilege, but I have a lot of other privilege in my own life and mm -hmm. experience. Um, it created a lot of bias inside of how I taught writing when I was in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And if I were back there um, today, I think I would be doing things very differently. The irony around all of this as well is when you go out into the world beyond school, this is what people are demanding mm. um, 
that's exactly what I was, you know, kind of getting at. Requiring us to, so this whole notion Mm -hmm. that print is the only way to empower writers is incredibly short-sighted and misinformed because one of the things that's been hardest for me is, so I run this, I've run this writing studio outside of the public school system for um, almost, I think, 13 years now um, in some way, shape or form every single year. And so I've worked with writers from the time they're young until um, they move through middle school and high school and into college. And almost 100% of the time, the writers that I served who I defined as gifted writers, when they come into their adult life and their professional experiences, they're coming back to me and saying that they're either not satisfied with the work that they're doing inside of that field, there are humongous injustices occurring, and they don't feel like they can pivot out of it. They don't have the wings to leave that situation. Almost all of the time, there is something um, surrounding their inability to multimodally compose that's holding them back. So they want to be able to get published and they can't get their stuff published. And in terms of the quality of the written word, it's beautiful, but they don't know how to blog. They're not establishing a digital footprint. Um, They're not necessarily creating a network or a community online. They're not sure how to use graphic design tools, even like the free ones that are available. So they're not able to influence the world in the way that they need to in order to get their stuff published. Um, And that's been incredibly humbling for me is to realize that I did not expect these writers to sharpen that particular saw around multimodal composition because they had it all going on, you know, with with the alphabet. And um, I thought they were all that in a bag of chips. And I think so did they. And now I'm realizing how I shortchanged them as a teacher. And even when I wrote my first book, Make Writing, I, I wrote in there, you know, making is an invitation, it's not a mandate. I feel very differently about that today. You know, three books later, yeah, um, I really truly believe that had I expected, invited, um, did a little bit more than encouraged, uh, but actually required students to become more multimodally um, confident, that I would have served them better as a writing teacher. And it's something that I work very hard to do now, but that's been a big part of my own learning and growth. I think that so much of, I mean, honestly, the human experience in general at this point is mediated by especially images. So you might have this great print piece that you've created, but the way that people are relating and connecting to each other, especially in online spaces is is primarily visual and spatial. So unless you have that ability to sort of tap into the, the, uh, endless stream of information and pictures and text and kind of define yourself. Um, I don't, I don't want to say brand yourself, but to, to kind of assert your identity and your, your writing purposes and aims in a multimodal way, it's really hard to capture the attention and imagination. And that's where I come at the whole notion of voice with now. The way that I conceptualized a writer's voice when I started teaching 25 years ago is completely different when I think about it through the lens of multimodal composition. Not only what does what do these diverse modalities offer you in terms of voice, but also are you able to lift your voice truly and use it to influence other people if you are not becoming increasingly comfortable with doing that in a multimedia and a multimodal world that really influences your ability to have voice. And that's a very different way of thinking about it than I used to. So you, would it be fair to say you used to think 
that voice was mostly something crafted through the written word and now yeah, you the think way we always defined it was the mm. voices being able to hear the writer on the page mm. that if your name wasn't at the top of the paper i could tell that you wrote it if it was mm. you know a personal piece right mm -hmm. voices the ability to hear the characters that you're reading um mm. and implying that reading is is text right that it's alphabetic text specifically um, voice is not just something that lives on the page or the screen and we don't just create it in those ways um, and it becomes this incredibly complex beautiful and powerful thing when we think about it through the lens of multimodality and I'm watching kids who are incredibly print comfortable who are unable to have their voices heard because we lauded their ability to put down written words and we didn't think it was important to help them develop those other those other skills and and it's it, interesting it, it seems like you know what are what's happening in the classroom and what's privileged in the classroom is kind of detached from what you know the corporate world or the civic world or the social world is sort of looking for in terms of the type of content that people are consuming which i also feel like is interesting because this i think this a switch to multimodal composition is is probably much more comfortable for students than it is for teachers um i, I talked to my students at the beginning of the year and every time they post an instagram story or or do a send a snapshot they're making design decisions they're considering their audience they're thinking about the form and the structure um, and like it, designing and interpreting multimodal text is something that like is their bread and butter. They do it every day. And for me, it feels like it's really, I don't want to say it's easy, but as a, as a teacher, once I've sort of opened my mind to that, I feel like I have a lot more, um, prior knowledge I can tap into when I talk to my students about the, the, the choices and decisions they can make as writers. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's really, it's interesting. And I laugh at myself sometimes because sometimes old fuddy-duddy people like me are, are known to criticize kids for the amount of social media they consume and how they're living on TikTok right now, especially during <laughs> the pandemic. Um, but that's actually sharpening those skills and um, teaching them a different way to comprehend the information that they're taking in. And, and of course, you know, we need to, to help them become more discriminating and that doesn't happen sometimes. Um, but I, I don't think that we can necessarily, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater there, that there's a lot happening um, in terms of learning that they're not being taught in school when they're consuming those things on their own time. And it is preparing them um, in a way that school may not be depending on, on who their teachers are and what they have access to. I'm wondering if we could get uh, like to a concrete example of like how you used to teach or, or ideas for, for people who I follow you on Twitter. So I'm able to visually see um, some of the things that you promote, but I'm just wondering if you could tell us um, what you hope teachers would do in the classroom instead of privileging only print. Um, what type of thing do you hope that they would do? I think when teachers can become a little bit more aware of what the different modes of expression are, and one of the easiest ways to make the shift is to reflect on the fact that anytime you would put a pen, a pencil, or a screen in a writer's hands, let them use any of those modes of expression instead to tell their story. Structure for me also um, tends to become something that can be very powerful. Oftentimes as a writing teacher, I used to center a unit around the writing process. 
So we would go through activities to brainstorm an idea. Then we would go through activities to plan or rehearse. Then you would draft really long using alphabetic text. And I would give you feedback and you wouldn't pay attention to it. And then I would get, <laughs> there was no revision and your spelling was a mess. And then the whole mm -hmm. thing would kind of mm -hmm. unravel from there. What I'm finding is that if I can give kids a structure, for instance, make a claim in the first bit of, of your particular piece. And then I would like you to use three pieces of evidence to support that claim and have a call to action. So there's five pieces to that, right? Old school, that might've been a five paragraph essay. But now I want you to build your claim using Legos. I want you to build it using, build all the evidence out um, using loose parts like Legos, including your call to action and keep them all separate and talk with me about what each of those pieces mean and why, you know, your intentions, Dan Ryder, his book with Amy Burval, Intention, Critical Creativity in the Classroom, um, fabulous book. And, and they speak to this at length there that as long as the child can hold up that claim that's made out of Legos and talk with you about, well, this is why I chose the colors and this is why I snapped it together. This is what it represents. You're actually elevating the complexity of that work because those Legos are metaphoric. There's where we're getting to your third piece of metaphorical yeah. thinking. Tell us yeah. more. I, I mean, um, it's fascinating. I'm still, I'm still a little bit mushy, um, but I, I think we can get there. Tell us sure. more. <laughs> When you remove the ability for children to use letters and words to communicate their ideas explicitly, you are automatically bringing metaphorical thinking into play because what they choose to use to express themselves, whether it's Legos or whether last week I had a teacher, um, Jen Green from Pennsylvania, uh, just, it wasn't last week, it was yesterday, told me that um, she had children um, in her school go outside and build forts to write fort stories and one of her students literally went into the woods and cut down logs and built <laughs> this massive fort and he's telling a story from inside of that that fort is driving and play is driving every single decision that he's going to make about a story right going forward whenever you remove the letters and words we have to be able to explain what things mean because they're more symbolic in nature. Um, and so if we're using things like um, uh, Legos to represent something, if I wanna say um, the claim that I'm going to make is people should be wearing masks in public because if they don't, we're going to, to create the spread of this disease. But I'm removing the ability to express that with letters and words. I have to build something. So now I have to explain what the color choices mean and the way that I snapped it together. And that build is really a symbol. It's more metaphorical in nature. And that elevates the complexity of the thinking that I'm doing and the decisions that I'm making. And it also is going to challenge an audience um, to interpret it in a way that I think requires a little more um, rigor as well. Yeah. I just feel like there are, are certain things um, as an ELA teacher that are, are so central or have been so central or so commonplace in the way that we think and talk about our goals of instruction that they sort of have become invisible. And I think that like writing as, a, as its own end, like what is the purpose of English class to read and write? Well, like to what end? And I think that that's really was kind of a big shift for me when I started thinking about multimodal composition is it's, it's why, do we write, why do we write? We write to construct and create meaning to make sense of ourselves, to make sense of our lives, to, to communicate in meaningful and impactful ways. And print is an incredibly powerful tool to do that, but it's not the only one. And 
I, I feel like we should have like a, like a, a clax on because every podcast, there's a point where we're like, here's a binary that exists. Let's deconstruct it. Um, yeah. But I think like this idea that like by, by giving more um, time and attention to the other modes, you are, are cutting off a student's ability to write. I think back to one of our first episodes was with Ken Gordon and it was about the topic of writing. And he says one of the most powerful tools that a writer has is metaphor. So if you get students thinking more metaphorically by taking away their ability to use print when they have access to it again or decide to, to tap into that mode, they can do it with, with much more depth. Um, so I, I, for me, I just think that's such an important message because I know that many teachers you know, are like, well, like, you know, our final assessment is in print or our state test or whatever. And it's like just by affording other students new ways and tools to make meaning, you're actually empowering them. To, to deal with those systemic and structural limitations, but also, and more importantly, to recenter the true purpose of what writing was, which is how to construct meaning. Yeah, and you touch on another point that's, that's one, it's a bit of a stone in my shoe right now, a rather large one, which is this notion that we are requiring the use of alphabetic text and print to assess children and especially seniors like graduating seniors in high school on content knowledge and skills that have nothing to do with the mastery of the written word. So in that way, requiring or demanding the use of the written word on high stakes assessments that determine whether or not you're getting a college degree on content knowledge and skills that have nothing to do with that particular kind of writing that is an equity issue in my mind. And it's closing doors for human beings that might have deep expertise. Um, and if they were able to express it using a different modality, not only would they graduate from high school, but they would probably be able to teach those concepts to other human beings in ways that are far more accessible and considerate. So it really has pushed my thinking around, well, who's really the struggling writer? The kid who's not able to use the written word to express scientific knowledge that really has nothing to do with the written word in a particular context, or the kid who can, can do all of that in writing, but when we put you in a lab, or when we put you at the front of a, a department, or we put you in a leadership role inside of the field of science, you are completely incapable of moving masses of people to make good decisions about science because you can't do it multimodally. And I'm sure that right now inside of this pandemic, there are a number of scientists who have really important information to communicate, but because they're communicating it through, you know, stacks of nine point font papers, nobody's reading it. No, Angela, I mean, that's huge. And to your point, and this might have originally been even shared on your Facebook group, the doctoral program that I'm about to start oh. at the University of Illinois, I actually discovered two of the principal researchers, Good. Bill Cope and Mary Kalansis, because they had a, a MOOC on Coursera and videos all over YouTube. And they have all of these incredible ideas. I mean, to the point where I'm literally like pursuing a degree in them. And if I hadn't found that YouTube video sharing them, I don't know if I ever would have seen them because most of their other stuff is, you know, locked in these incredibly dense texts. But because they took the time to uh, produce these videos, you know, people are going to hear their message more. And I think that's a powerful thing. We have to meet our audience where they're at. And if I want to move human beings to make good health decisions inside of a pandemic, I need to ask myself, 
which of those people are really going to read a 50 page dissertation on your particular theory. You need to turn that into a, a public service announcement. And we need you to be able to do that in like the next, I don't know, 10 hours. We can't hire staff to get this message out for you. Like you need to hop on YouTube and share your thinking in order to move people. Um, there are many right now. Um, in fact, I just got off of a conversation um, with a member of our instructional staff who is talking about using the peer review process through a, a distance learning model and wanting to be able to have set up critical friendships um, with maybe triads in our classroom, three groups, you know, three kids at a time, offering critical feedback on one another's work and then being able to share with her where the breakdown in their thinking occurred. And then she's gonna look at that and maybe offer some instructional videos very quick that they can open up and look at in a very timely way so that the feedback is useful to them. Um, but what we're finding, and I'm sure you're hearing this as well, is that when it comes to this quick shift to distance learning, what really seems to be mattering is that kids wanna see your face. So the written feedback that we're putting on student work, no one's paying attention to. We're throwing up tons of text in an asynchronous learning module. Kids aren't showing up um, to consume it. But what I am hearing from so many different corridors of the world right now, um, personally and professionally in a bigger scope, is that if the kids aren't sure that they're going to see your face and hear mm -hmm. you talk to them, mm -hmm. they're going to listen. They're, they're being much more responsive to your mm -hmm. feedback and your lessons and your teaching. So we need to know how to do that. My That's kids, so, yeah. So many things I'm thinking of. Oh, I just wanted to share this because I shared it last night in a webinar and it seemed to, to strike a chord. My kids' teachers do 15 minutes a week. So that's doable. I mean, depending on if you're secondary and you've got 160 kids, but um, 15 minutes per kid per week of for one-on-ones. Yeah. And my son, he's only four, but I feel like this is this is this speaks to this could be a metaphor for how other older kids might react. But my my four-year-old bounces in his seat for 15 straight minutes when his teacher talks to him when she does a one-on-one -on -one Zoom call with him. He bounces for straight for, for 15 minutes. Um, and so it's so cute to watch, but yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a big takeaway that, that I have that I wish more teachers would do those even very brief, even once a week or once every two weeks, depending on how many kids you have, um, one-on-one -on -one calls and those group, group calls, not very often, but, but occasionally. Um, I also want to go back to this, uh, metaphorical thinking and using really unconventional things like Legos. We are, we are huge fans of, of modeling clay and Play-Doh um, and metaphors and having people sort of illustrate concepts uh, with using Play-Doh and things like that. I'm wondering if you find that it takes teacher modeling or even some of your top students, or not your top students, your students who get it uh, for faster to model it. Or do you think most kids are like, yeah, I could, I can do that. I can take some Legos and, and make when, my claim. When I, work with teachers, I always encourage them to withhold modeling until they're sure they need to model. Um, we don't want kids at a level of unproductive frustration, mm -hmm. but I will tell you this. What's fascinating to watch is if I go into a classroom and I give kindergartners Play-Doh to work with, oftentimes what they will make with that Play-Doh is far more granular and detailed and specific. And if I take that Play-Doh into an eighth grade classroom, kids are super thrilled that they're getting to use the Play-Doh, <laughs> but when they start working with it, they do two things. They make 
spheres hmm. or they make snakes. <laughs> <laughs> and it takes them a while to play with it and keep messing with it before they start remembering the language of Plato in order mm -hmm. to use it in a more complex way. Um, and this is something that they speak about in Reggio Emilia often. Teachers will say, well, if I give them the Plato, they're gonna like throw it at each other. They're gonna throw it on the floor. They're gonna make a mess with it, blah, blah, blah. They are, which is why before you want children to use materials in that way to express themselves in an English language art situation, just put the Play-Doh on the table during home base and let them mess with it while they're listening to morning announcements. Let them play with it and, and, and screw around with it in a, you know, a million ways and, and, and play with that particular material because that's how they're going to come to remember the language that they haven't spoken since they were maybe five or six or seven years old. Um, but it's fascinating to watch how children who are far younger than them and whose level of thought might not be necessarily quite as sophisticated they're doing more complex things with that material than an eighth grader or a senior in high school will at first because they're currently fluent in that language and the others are rusty um, and so um, i i advocate for a lot of experimentation and play before deciding that I'm going to model only because, especially with, with older writers, they're so concerned about doing it perfectly and getting the it right answer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we can do multiple mm -hmm. models. Yeah. Um, if I model, I typically will show kids either multiple quick videos of different people doing it different ways or photos, but I never personally just show them my single example because they'll just. Mimic it. Yeah. I, I have that. It's such a chicken egg situation. I think I might've even like messaged you at some point, Angela, to ask about this very question because I was wanting to do more, you know, uh, modeling in class to, to help students understand stuff. And even, even as I turn to my students to model, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna like show you, I'm gonna write an assertion and I, I want you to take ownership of it. Do not copy my same like syntax, use my same language. And they're like, we got it, Mr. Elia, we're gonna have our own voice. And I wrote the sentence and I went around and as a class, we all started laughing because probably half of the kids switched one or two words. And they, they truly, truly were like, we know we cannot <laughs> copy you. But they're just so, and this is my pre-AP students, mm -hmm. they're just so used to that. And that really made me kind of do a head take. Well, I think it's also, you know, it's part of the developmental process when we're beginners at anything. We will mimic first mm -hmm. um, before we'll sort of riff on that a little bit. Um, when I use mentor text with kids in um, mini lessons, I'll often show them three different ways, right, to create a character. Three different that's it, ways. That's it. I like that. I like that yeah. as like a potential yeah. solution of like yeah. three unique different. Write it. I want you to write your claim three different ways before you mm -hmm. decide which one you want to use. And then fourth one, I want you to try to combine two of those together, right? Mm -hmm. And just like mm. they're messing with it and working with it a little bit. Freedom within structure, Julie. That's right. We love to say freedom within structure. Um, and I think, you know, what's cool about what you're doing, Angela, I love it because what you're doing seems to me like you're combining some of this um, somewhat forward thinking about forward that goes backwards, right? That, that says play and messing and creativity um, is inherent to the learning process that I see almost from more progressive educators out there um, advocating for like, like, like you say, Reggio Emilia, uh, Montessori, things like that. At the same time, 
we know very, very rigorous research, such as Robert Marzano says, non-linguistic representation actually has what you were, what both of you were talking about before, about students' ability to uh, think more deeply when they're asked to do metaphorical thinking, so that when the pen and paper written word comes out, their right. brains <laughs> um, can think more different, more more deeply, and more more doing more synthesis and things of that nature. And so it's it's like you're combining um, this more study research based stuff with more forward thinking. Let's think about the humanistic aspect of education and bringing both of those together in something that promotes that? equity. I mean, how gorgeous can you talk is that? To us about about that intersection, Angela, because like that is something that that we feel like is really important. Mm -hmm. That like the, this research base is over here, and you know uh, certain types of more creative dynamic practice are over here. And and what needs to happen is those things need to be joined. Yeah. Um, and and I love that that's such a focus for you. And and uh, I believe that is a kind of a big emphasis in your next book. So could you talk to us a little bit about how you find that intersection between like sort of as Julie framed it, the sort of stodginess of the research world and the more dynamic world of play. Well. I think it really connects to what you just said about freedom within structure. We know um, and, and can be fairly confident about the best practices that significant amounts of research have defined for us works with instruction. We can't just toss that. So we have to ask our, you know, we have to play with it ourselves and we have to be willing to be experimental and not just simply say, oh, I'm going to throw best practice out the window because let's go play with this stuff over here. It looks so interesting and fun. And sometimes I get very frustrated um, with people who really haven't taken a lot of time to understand my work. They'll rush to conclusions and they'll say things, well, of course they want to come and play with your Legos. It's just not rigorous. It's not That's fun. Right. And I want to say, well, and it's very clear you have not like followed. Exactly. <laughs> Looking mm -hmm. at the pretty pictures and not, mm -hmm. and, and that's one of the dangers of things like Twitter is people will share all sorts of things that look pretty. Um, but we've talked before, I think Trevor and I, because um, one of our first conversations happened around um the, game, the book Game Storming, which was written by uh, Suni Brown and um, Dave Gray and um, McAnufo. And um, in there, they talk about how we, we create this, this false, um, th this false sort of, um, I'm, and I'm missing the word here, dichotomy, it's probably not the right word that I want to use, but that we're either controlling for creativity or we are controlling for quality. And what game storming does is it gives us a structure that allows us to control for both. So if we're real clear around what the structure is for best practice, we can also apply that through a lot of different frameworks that encourage creativity. And I think that we, we have to have both. We have to be able to look at a child playing and be able to see where the gold lies inside of that. So when I'm watching a child play inside of a fort that they built in the woods, and I can sit and just listen to them play, and I can hear them inventing a character, inventing a problem, inventing a solution, inventing a story art, that is what children do. And I can say to myself, you know, and I can confer with the writer and say, tell me what you're doing with this fort. 
is there a character? Is there a story? Like, I want to hear all of the different parts of the story. And I can say, well, the character is really well developed, but this problem is sort of shallow. And I can throw a what if into the play scene. And I can say, oh my gosh, you know, what if this villain arrives to your fort? What are you going to do then? Well, this is what I, and it's, it's about playing with them um, mm -hmm. and following them in their play a little bit. Um, rather than imposing all of the meaning on what they're That's doing, right. becoming mm -hmm. really, really mm -hmm. tight in that control. Mm -hmm. And would you say also, I'm just wondering if this, would you agree with this notion? I'm thinking just with my own kids, this conversation is so great because I see they're four and six and they play so, their imagination is incredible. Um, and definitely I see that with secondary kids, they sort of lose it, especially in the classroom setting. They're, they're trained to think what, guess what's in the teacher's brain. Um, I'm wondering if it's fair to say that high quality sort of video input or things of that nature. So my kids, I'm really big into PBS Kids. PBS Kids has amazing stuff, um, cartoons. And what I see is my, my kids will bring it into their play scene. So they'll learn a lot of yes. science concepts and then they'll bring it into their play scene. I wonder if we should be thinking about things like that for our high schoolers of how the videos that we watch, the texts that we read kind of come into their play scenes. It's about, and I think it's about creating play scenes mm. inside of our classrooms that are less mm -hmm. teacher-centered. Mm -hmm. That's a huge piece of what I've learned from vi visiting Reggio Emilia um, as often as I have is that two things are very important, materials and provocations. So instead of standing at the front of the room and what, what they say there is, is we do not assault children from the front of the room um, <laughs> with content knowledge, um, we follow them into essentially what you're describing as a play scene. So if I want students to understand something about um, the way that a flower in spring becomes a piece of fruit, I'm going to come and leave that on the shelf in my classroom. And I'm going to invite them to look at it. And I'm going to put questions in front of them that kind of intrigue them and are delightful and make them want to go back and study it over time as it's actually and authentically happening. We're going to plant a garden outside of our school, for instance. And what we need to, what these teachers get really good at are deciding what materials and artifacts am I going to put in the play scene? And what questions am I going to ask to get you to go to the next, like I have the standard in my head. I have the best practice in my head, but I'm going to ask you the question that gets you to leap and to reach to that next place. And it really is about shaping a scene. Mm -hmm. And I think people who, like you talked about earlier, people who don't understand that, that sort of, um, deep thought that the teacher has to bring to the scene thinks, oh, we just want to let the kids play. Um, because yeah. if we even use those as taglines. I saw a webinar that was like, let them play, or maybe a hashtag, let the kids play. Right. Um, and you so- get every best practice, you know, mm -hmm. uh, zealot out there, you know, turning up their nose at that. And mm -hmm. what gets really hard too is when materials matter and they matter very much in my life, they become beautiful and we're really, we take a lot of care to be selective about the materials that we put in front of children and they're either beautiful or they're intriguing or they're unexpected, but whatever they are, they're compelling. 
And that inspires people to take pictures of the materials and then tweet about them and put them on social media. And if people don't know and haven't really taken the time to explore, you know, this work in terms of best practice, it's very easy to assume what you're seeing on the surface is, is, is the whole of it. And it can look very pretty and it can look very fun. And it is, I hope it's all of those things. But in order to do this well, it requires, I think, yeah, a level of expertise and a real commitment to best practices that I think is a little more um, humble and perhaps a little less um, in your face. It's not explicit necessarily. It's woven into the fabric that creates that scene that you're talking about. And, and bringing this full circle, so, so many of those judgments come from a place of centering a certain type of aesthetic, <clears throat> a certain type of discourse, like things that you see in a, in a quote unquote rigorous classroom. Um, and there are these false associations between a rigorous classroom, the desks are in rows. A rigorous classroom is there's a pencil and paper on the desk. And you know, going back to that idea of how our understanding of the world is becoming mediated by images, we see this picture and we think that we have the full context. We think that we have the full shape of things when, when in reality, there's a lot more going on. And I think that this is really important because if we're, whether we're talking about engaging students or even attracting new teachers to the profession, this idea of aesthetic and design is such an integral part of their, of kids' experiences and what they want to do, what they want to, what they want to see, what they want, who they want to be. So like, I think it's, it's pivotal that we think about the aesthetics of education and the design of the, the content that we create and share because you know, like it or not, that that is, is what's going to potentially have kids be like, oh, this is related to things in my outside life because it doesn't look like a dry, bland thing that would only happen in school. Right. It's the blending of these of these. What's worlds. really um, interesting, and it's just, it's, it, it's been a completely unexpected personal experience, is when we went into um, pause in New York State, I, it's like the, I can't even remember, early March, right? All of us were asked basically to quarantine, not fully quarantine, but, but to practice social distancing and kids are no longer attending school in their physical places. People aren't working. Um, my husband and I were sitting in our living room and we live in a very walkable community. And so there's this massive tree um, about 20 feet from my living room window on the other side of the sidewalk between the sidewalk and the street. And there's a hole at the base of this tree. It's massive. My husband and I have called the village multiple times. We need the tree removed because it's going to fall on our house. But what we saw that <laughs> night were two children on their stomachs inspecting the hole of that tree. My husband said, we should, put in, we should put something in there for them to find tomorrow. Because all of a sudden, the whole world is full of children walking with their families everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's lovely. Mm -hmm. yeah, never yeah. Been before. Mm -hmm. So we put two little gnomes in the tree. And then the next day, someone left a painted rock. And then the next day we added fairies. And then the next day, this little girl left a card with a story in it that she'd invented about the fairies. This has been going on now for almost 11 weeks <laughs> where every day we're adding something to the tree. But you should see downstairs on my bulletin board, the amount of writing, these the entire sidewalk when I got home at lunchtime today is covered with this whole visual story, panel by panel, a dragon and all of these other things have been added the children are coming to that tree and they are writing about that tree every single day. I did not ask them to do that. I didn't. That's amazing. Them. I saw you That's tweet awesome. about that yeah. and I assumed that you told them to do that. But that is absolutely amazing. Adding a different material to the tree every day changes the story. 
if that makes sense. And I'm writing a story on my Facebook wall every night too, because now like my, my aunt from, from Las Vegas, who's in, I think in her eighties is like adoring this story. And my husband's friend from work is sharing it with people. And all of my friends are like, you have to keep writing the story about the tree. Um, because I think people are just so hungry for something playful right now that it doesn't have to do with all of the scary that's going on but yeah and uh, yeah it's been it's been interactive and and unintended and completely the sort of thing that I love and what a great metaphor for why not just writing but all forms of composition and meaning making are important because they allow us the ability to connect with other people through stories through shared experiences and it's incredibly important the, the closeness that distance built with this tree and none of us see each other. Like I'm in the house all day when they're out there playing with it and I won't even look too often because I don't mm. want to know. It'll ruin the magic. Of uh-huh. the <laughs> awesome. They don't see, they keep leaving little notes. We want to see who you are, um, but there's so much energy around it. And I think that that's where we want to go when we're talking about writing. And multimodality and voice and equity, all of those things are kind of necessary to put that all together. So for people who don't have access to the large tree outside of your home to leave messages, yeah. where, where can people reach out to you to find more of your work? And you are one of my top follow recommendations on Twitter because our, the stuff you share is great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, both of you, I bow to. And, um, and I'm just so excited that you're doing this podcast and, and really bringing your work out into the world in this whole new way. It's so exciting. I am on Twitter at, at Angela Stockman, although that is not my preferred place to hang out because there are so many people there and the stream moves so fast mm. that I cannot keep up. Mm-hmm. So I'm also in the Building Better Writers group on Facebook and I tend to um, sort of sink in there a little bit more often. Um, so you can find me on Building Better Writers on Facebook or on Twitter at, at Angela Stockman. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on. And it's, it's been a blast chatting with you. You too. Thank you both. I'm so excited. Awesome. Thank you, Angela. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us understand our world. If you like this podcast, feel free to like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform. If you want to learn more or get involved, check out our website at edtosavetheworld.com and join our Facebook group, Learning the Transverse.